Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Mensch Warfare Edition. It's Wednesday, December 14th, 2016. On today's show, Jackie is the new film starring Natalie Portman as Jackie Kennedy. It follows the iconic First Lady's story in the aftermath of her husband's assassination. It also stars Greta Gerwig, Peter Sarsgaard, and uh, Billy Crudup. And then um, 3% is a Brazilian-made TV show and a Netflix original. That's a lovely combination, in my estimation. It's a dystopian look at a world riven by inequality in which young people get one shot at joining the privileged class, where they are forever left behind in the favela. And finally, what happens when one of America's finest literary critics plays video games? We discuss Laura Miller's essay, How Video Games Change Us, with none other than Laura Miller. Laura, welcome to the show. You're filling in for Julia Turner this week. Yeah, it's great to be here. Laura, I should add that you're a books and culture columnist for Slate. Uh, And of course, we're joined by um, Dana Stevens, Slate's film critic. Hey, Dana. Hey, Stephen. Now, Dana, I have to say, thanks to a series of cascading snafus, I was not able to watch Jackie. So subbing in for me is going to be Sam Adams, who's the new browbeat editor for Slate. Uh, I wish I could join that discussion, but unfortunately, I I just can't. Seeing the movie really is a bar I like to clear before um, (laughs) leading a discussion on a movie. But um, Dana, what other business do we have? I guess our only business this week is to mention that our Slate Plus segment is going to be about top 10 lists because both Laura and I have done ours in the past couple weeks, mine on movies of 2016 and her on the books. So we will talk about that in our Slate Plus segment. And then also just a general reminder that Slate Plus makes a great holiday gift for your loved ones. You can support Slate's journalism and also get all kinds of nifty extras like our top 10 discussion in today's podcasts. You can find out what some of those extras are and figure out how to subscribe if you go to slate.com slash culture plus. Now I actually cede the microphone to Dana Stevens. Dana, um, I'll see you after the Jackie segment is over. Jackie is the fifth feature film from the Chilean director, Pablo Larraín. So we've brought in our new browbeat editor at Slate, an erstwhile film critic for all kinds of places, including BBC, the LA Times, Rolling Stone. His name's everywhere. And he's Sam Adams. Hi. Hi, Sam. Hi, Dave. So as seems to be the fashion with a historical biopics lately, if you want to call this a biopic, it's a bit kind of an unusual one, but it focuses 
on a very micro period of Jackie Kennedy's life, just the few days immediately following, maybe the week or so following the assassination of her husband. It's all framed with a frame story where Billy Crudup is an unnamed journalist who comes to interview her about the experience. And then throughout the movie, as she responds to him, we flash back in different order to all these memories of the assassination and the couple of days surrounding it. Let's listen to a clip. And just to set up what's happening here, this comes a little later in the movie when Portman as Jackie is arguing with Jack Valenti, who was one of LBJ's press liaisons, about whether or not to march in public and make a, make a big public spectacle of the funeral procession. I understand. As I said, Mrs. Kennedy, I wish there were more we could do to accommodate your wishes. I'm terribly sorry. Don't be. You and the Johnsons have already done so much. Good day, Mrs. Kennedy. Um, Mr. Valenti, would you mind getting a message to all our funeral guests when they land? Of course. Inform them that I will walk with Jack tomorrow, alone if necessary. And tell General de Gaulle that if he wishes to ride in an armored car or in a tank for that matter, I won't blame him. And I'm sure the tens of millions of people watching won't either. Why are you doing this, Mrs. Kennedy? I'm just doing my job. All right. So I have my own reactions to this movie that I will I will restrain until I've heard from both of you. I think that clip gives some good sense of the the kind of performance Portman is doing, you know, the accent and also of the kind of steeliness of her character. And the main conflict in this movie essentially is has to do with PR, has to do with her coming into conflict with various ideas of how to represent the assassination and how to represent the the funeral and other moments of national mourning. Um, Sam, I'm going to go to you first. What did you expect from Jackie? What did you get from Jackie? Would you send people to Jackie? I had very little idea what to expect from Jackie, given the involvement of the director of Pablo Larraín, who you mentioned. It seems coming into Oscar season as it is, it seems like this is another sort of showy, biopicy performance that's really just a vehicle for Natalie Portman to get nominated. But the movie is actually very arch and very arty and very much about the construction of her public persona. Jackie, I think, is is really remembered principally at this point as kind of a style icon. And the movie's view of her is really as more of a kind of image maker in chief, whose job is to mold public perception of the White House very much in the way kind of a press secretary might nowadays One of the key things in it before the assassination is this uh, celebrated White House tour that was televised on CBS that Jackie was in many ways kind of the architect of. There are notes in the Kennedy Kennedy Library of her kind of annotating and rewriting the script. And it's a role that she really kind of comes into fully once JFK is assassinated. And there's this desire everybody else has for things to get back to normal. And for me, the most poignant scene in the movie is they set it on Air Force One where it's just after the assassination and she's in what's become this kind of iconic blood-stained pink Chanel suit. And as LBJ is being sworn in as the nation's new president, um, his wife, Lady Bird, kind of goes to Jack and says, oh, you know, let's get you out of that suit. And she says, no. And then what's become this this famous line, you know, I want them to see what they've done. And it's very much about holding on to that moment after the president has been assassinated and not just rushing to get everything back to normal. And that's a moment that I've actually come back to a lot since the election. It's one that's been very resonant for me because it's it's a moment about this process of public grieving and that we can't just rush to kind of get everything back to normal and kind of regain our balance. And there, we need to take some time to just appreciate that this traumatic thing has happened. Um, what about you, Laura? What, what do you think of Jackie? Well, I've had the misfortune of having to read and review two different 
Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis biographies, which is not something I'd wish on anyone because, I mean, and I think the movie does convey this. She is a not very interesting person to whom a lot of interesting things happened. And she had this one particular talent, which was this ability to sort of communicate in visual symbols that was very closely linked to the sort of telegenic aspect of her of her husband. I mean, they were really a pair in that respect. And there were several things that that she did uh, as a style icon and, and first lady that sort of ushered in the the sort of new post-war America. The assertion that that Americans could be as sort of cultured and elegant as Europeans, but in their own distinct way. Previously, first ladies had been associated with a kind of dowdy, down-home sort of Pat Nixon with her cloth coat. That was sort of the the ideal model for the first lady. And the, she, Jackie, sort of symbolized America sort of stepping onto the world stage, being not only a, a superpower, but also a cultural force to be reckoned with. But it was always associated with with high culture. It was very important in this movie that she had people like Pablo Casals playing in the White House. She was she was a big Francophile. The French loved her far more than they loved JFK. Uh, she was seen as a continuity between European high culture and um, the American elite, uh, but she herself has always is kind of a cipher. And in this, she's mostly just angry or grief stricken. And I, I don't know, I've always found her so difficult to be interested in. And, and I didn't feel like this movie got me past that. And, um, I, it, it has still made me incredibly frustrated. With- you didn't feel like this movie was asking you to love her. I, fe- I mean, I felt very strongly, although it's not a, you know, a rosy hagiography by any means. As, as Sam said, it's, it's done in an arch and sort of, um, emotionally distancing way, right? But but I still feel like this movie is asking you to love and feel sympathy for Jackie. And that's something, I don't know if it was, it was Portman's, what I found to be extremely mannered performance, or if it was that distancing way of directing. But even though I could understand that all the things that were happening to her were tragic and traumatic, I didn't experience that trauma along with her. Did either of you? Uh, not exactly. I mean, for me, the one place where the movie falls down, but this is something I can also see as the strength is kind of getting to that core, you know, biopics, which again, this is maybe arguably is and maybe arguably isn't, but biopics tend to kind of promise some key insight into their subject's character. And this is a movie that really shies away from that. There's really no center to Portman's performance. It's there's it's postmodern in a way. There's kind of no there there. I think that ends up working to the movie's strength in a certain way and that it becomes entirely about this construction of identity and public persona, but it definitely presents me from feeling all the feels. You know, it, I don't – there are moments in the movie where I think maybe you're supposed to cry and I didn't, but uh, that distancing gives you – a better ability to analyze what's going on. And Jackie Onassis is, is sort of made of what other people need her to be at that time. I mean, she needed to, JFK needed a wife like that. The um, American people needed a first lady like that. Then they needed a first widow like that. And, and she sort of answered the call. But I have never, you know, I, having read a lot about her, 
like I don't watch this movie and feel like it I'm missing anything about her. For me there's a there's a quality to the performance where I can't really tell if this is a great performance or a terrible performance that is perfectly used within the context of the film, but there's a weird way in which it doesn't matter. It's so hyper-mannered and arch, but as you say, so is Jackie. You know, you can hear in the clip this kind of insane mid-Atlantic accent that no one has ever naturally spoken from birth, and that may strike people who aren't familiar with the way Jackie and Jack talked. That may strike them as very odd, but it is actually pretty close to the truth. They did speak in this very arch manner that kind of recalls Catherine Hepburn and screwball comedies. But uh, breathy, very breathy. Yes, yeah. yes. She gets the voice. She gets the voice really beautifully. But I was I was watching a lot of, of old clips of Jackie, including that CBS tour, which which Laureen mocks up, you know, he mocks up the actual grain of what TV looked like in the early sixties. It's it's incredibly well done. When you watch the original though, there's a kind of stillness to Jackie that I think Portman doesn't get at all. I mean, I think she's so concerned with with telegraphing at every moment what she's not expressing, you know? I mean, it's a thing that, like, a, a great actor can do, right, to ex- have their face express what they're supposed to be expressing, and then somehow you see what's actually going on in the brain behind. But I felt like Portman is flagging that so wildly in her performance that every single gesture could almost be plotted on a flowchart to, to prove what she's really thinking behind the map. Yeah, I guess playing somebody who is like a, a kind of sphinx is really challenging, especially if you're trying to communicate that she has all these passions going on inside of her, despite her sort of shellacked uh, exterior. Yeah, I was really struck by her first appearance when we kind of first see her open the door and let this character, played by Billy Crudup, who's called the journalist, although he's clearly modeled on Theodore White from Life magazine, who published this very celebrated interview with with Jackie Kennedy after the assassination. When she opens the door and lets him into the house, she's wearing, I think it's just a it's kind of a simple blouse or something, but she, it, it looks too big for her. She looks very kind of fragile and bird-like within it. And it strikes me that that kind of plays into the movie, the way that the movie is presenting her as, as someone who's kind of taking on this role that's too big for her and maybe too big for anyone, but turning that to her advantage somehow. It's worth mentioning as well that, I mean, we see her face in extremely tight close-up for something like 85% of the movie, right? So a a lot is put on Natalie Portman's face and gestures to communicate. There's a lot of silence in this movie or a lot of music that communicates an idea rather than having dialogue communicate it. And that, I thought, was was kind of a strength of the movie. Not necessarily the nonstop close-ups. I would have liked to know some of the other characters a little bit better. But just the lack of expository dialogue and kind of bland historical plodding scenes that plod you through, you know, the checkpoints of, of... post-assassination. I, I did appreciate that it had that kind of quick glancing quality on history rather than retelling the story. As the Oscars get closer, there's going to be more talk about this performance and, and maybe this movie as, as a nominee. But in general, would you would you guys send people who were mildly interested to, to see Jackie or no? Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, if they were a film person, it it looks beautiful. As you pointed out, the music is really great. It's a quiet film. I, I wouldn't send somebody who was interested in Jackie because, well, I don't know, maybe I would. I mean, I, after I saw it in the movie theater, there were two women in the restroom saying, you know, I never really thought that she had to go back and sleep in that bedroom. And I thought maybe this movie just is not for the likes of me. And there, are, uh, surely there were many people. I mean, there's a photo of my mom wearing almost exactly that same suit who really identified with her and would identify with her private trials that 
I'm, you know, not accounting for. And so maybe they would like it. And it's, and it's kind of a costume drama like The Queen or something. And uh, it does have beautiful costume design and yeah. incredible production design in yeah. the period. So that it might satisfy those, pe- those people, but it is very somber and not, not like a costume pick in that it doesn't really have a whole lot of uplift at the end. I would enthusiastically recommend it to people, but I would make sure that they know what they're in for, that this is not a straightforward biopic, you know, kind of what happened in November of 1963 type movie. It's got this, this, as you mentioned, this incredible production design. It's incredibly interestingly shot. It has this amazing dissonant orchestral score by Mika Levy. Oh, I forgot to mention that the score is beautiful. Yeah. She also did the score for Under the Skin. Yeah. I I think I would send people to it for the tech aspects of it. To, to see that performance, if they like Natalie Portman, I happen to be someone who tends to be allergic to Natalie Portman. But if you loved Black Swan, you'll probably love this because it's a similarly, you know, A plus student. I did everything for this role kind of performance, <laughs> which is why I think you will probably see her in the Oscar conversation. Maybe not the movie. And personally, I'm just going to throw in a plug for other films by Pablo Larraín because every other film by Pablo Larraín I've seen is much more interesting than this one. I think he's a really exciting director. So the film is Jackie. It's in theaters in wide release all over the country, I believe. Go and see it if you please. And tell us what you thought at Facebook.com slash CultureFest. So, Sam, thanks for coming in on such short notice. You came to the rescue on Jackie. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. 3% is a Brazilian miniseries now streaming on Netflix. It takes place in a futuristic dystopia that is, as all the good ones are, an extrapolation from everything rotten about our present reality. In the future, young people at age 20 compete in a test that is half like a reality show competition and half like applying to Stanford. We follow one particular cohort who are both cooperating with one another internally, but also uh, we come to understand we'll have to eventually be at one another's throats in order to enter this magical 3% and live offshore in a what sounds like a, a upper bourgeois paradise. We can't really listen to a clip, but maybe we can. It's both um, subtitle in Portuguese and dubbed. Why don't we do a little experiment um, and listen to a little bit of it in Portuguese and then segue into a bit of it in dubbed English. Agradecemos a chance. Agradecemos a chance. Dê uma vida melhor. Dê uma vida melhor. Muito obrigado. Muito obrigado. We are grateful for the chance. We are grateful for the chance. For a better way of life. For a better way of life. And so we thank you. And so we thank you. Dana, let me start with you. You, oddly enough, you speak Portuguese, correct? Uh, you have must have had a completely different experience of this show than the rest of us. Why don't we just start there before we dig in and talk about its merits? Well, yeah, I'm glad we started off by playing those two clips, one from the original version and one from the dubbed version, because I hope if people don't already know this, you have the option to watch this in the original version on Netflix, which I didn't realize until I was two and a half episodes in. And I'm the one who wanted to watch this because, yes, I spent some time in Brazil. I speak Portuguese. I was really interested to see, to hear the language in the show. And then the dubbing is absolutely terrible. I mean, both in terms of its translation and just the quality of the actors doing it. So if you watch 3% on Netflix, please go to the little audio options menu at the beginning and select Portuguese. Even if you don't speak Portuguese, the dubbing is terrible. Yeah. And, and it's distractingly, right? I mean, it's just distracting when the lips don't match up and you feel like you're watching something yeah. very fake. Um, that said, I thought this show was very interesting and I, I was I, I find it sort of uh, endearingly low budget compared to any American Netflix 
eight-episode season of a series. It, it has this feeling I read in one of the reviews somewhere, the sets, these very modern, white, futuristic sets that the, the team, the 3% team is moving through, that they look like office buildings during the weekend. You know, Or you, like an mm. airport or something. <laughs> right. Yeah. There, there's some yeah. sort of modern space that happened yeah. to be empty at that moment, yeah. so the crew came running in to shoot. And it has a little bit of that gorilla feeling of having been made for a shoestring budget, which I found very appealing. Yeah, there's mm-hmm. not a ton of CGI in it that I noticed. Right, it's not like Westworld where where your your eyes are yeah. constantly popping at some you know amazing sequence of a yeah. robot being constructed or something. It it definitely has a, a more DIY kind of feel. But the questions that it's asking, I think, are I mean, <laughs> both in Brazil and in the U.S. and really all around the world, the 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 kind of critique of meritocracy that this show's premise poses is, I think, a really fascinating and depressing one to explore. And I'm I'm curious to see. I've only seen the first few episodes now. Finally started watching them in Portuguese, thank God. But I'm curious to see what happens when we actually get a glimpse of the Mar Alto, as they call it, the offshore place that they're all trying to get to. Because I'm only assuming that once you get there, there's got to be some kind of Westworld element where, you know, all the all the beauty hides some sort of ugly underbelly. Yeah, they seem to be having some kind of power struggle within the ranks of the 3% that is going on in the background of the process by which the people are being selected. Um, Laura, I'm curious to know, I, I first of all, I was deeply appreciative that it wasn't made in Hollywood, that it wasn't expensive, that ingenuity had to take the place of a super high budget. Um, and uh, it had a kind of Star Trek feel, you know, the original Star Trek feel where you just sort of have to get beyond the relative cheapness of it. I mean, relative to super expensive HBO, you know, fare, um, it still looks perfectly fine. So it really becomes about these internal relationships of these kids. There are twists that I don't want to give away that I thought were um, quite hooky uh, and made me want to watch it to the end. And then, uh, Dana, you really, you really, you lighted upon something that I liked about it most, which is that it's not just a Hunger Games retread in that a lot of what they're being tested on, we would recognize and acknowledge as, you know, adequate tests for merit. Um, It really does feel partially like a totally debased reality TV show, futuristic dystopian reality TV show, but also very much like college admissions now. I actually meant that seriously, that that you know they are probing these kids for character flaws um, and giving them what amounts to basically IQ tests and testing what we would recognize as merit. Um, and, and that is where it seems to me the satirical rubber hits the road of our reality, which is you know, we kind of do this. I mean, especially... Um, it's especially reflective of the election that we just came out of, where the dividing line w- was really people who had college degrees and those who didn't. I thought the satire really cut in a way that I wasn't expecting, um, and I enjoyed it quite a bit. I'm intent on watching it um, through the first season. By a weird coincidence, I saw this directly after a political journalist in Florida interviewed me about dystopian YA fiction, not just Hunger Games, but it's a huge booming or has been a booming genre in young adult fiction. Um, Hunger Games is not really about a meritocracy. It's about sort of a set class system where like the people in the sort of working class districts are sort of made to be the performing monkeys of the people who live in the cosmopolis but um but many 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 other YA fictions are about growing up in a technocratic highly rationalized and managed society where you are 
sometimes made to compete with other people, but basically you're sort of slotted into a role that you, you know, maybe you're paired up with somebody from birth, regardless of who you really want to marry or be with, um, or you have a certain kind of job or you're uh, in, you know, you're sort of sent to a particular class on the basis of your looks. These are recurring themes in YA fiction to a, a remarkable degree. She was asking me about how whether any of these stories predicted the dystopia we seem to be moving into. And I said, no, but the the response to that sort of technocracy, meritocracy, the idea that your life has been completely rationalized and and ordered by these authority figures who are sort of impersonal, cult of personality, calling back to the past of some kind of mythic national greatness, this this sort of mode of fascistic or quasi-fascistic authoritarianism is really a response to the anxiety that people have with a kind of shock of a new economy, a new system. The old fascisms came as a response to industrialization. And it's quite possible that all of these populist uprisings that we're seeing are a response to the new technological economy. Mm. And that they, you know, the people who voted for Trump are not the only people who are sort of rebelling against this. If you look at the kind of books that young people are reading these days. Is it that young readers and maybe viewers of this TV show feel as though a childhood as it was once conceived is now something that needs to be furtive, uh, fugitive, or perhaps even stolen against the forces of rationalization. And yet the danger of doing that, of stealing what is liberating or free about a childhood comes at the risk of not conforming to the meritocratic dictates and being left behind with the 99%, the 97%, or the bottom 50%. In other words, the, the anxiety is really generated by, on the one hand, a longing for an imaginatively free childhood experience outside of the technocratic octopus. At the same time, the risk of not getting into Stanford, or I mean, I know people will leap at me for that. I say that sarcastically, but the, of not getting on the arc, whatever it is, is terrifying. And that's where the neurosis comes from, or anxiety that makes people reach out to these fantasies. Well, it's hard to say with the actual readers of these books, because they, of course, did not necessarily grow up with the idea of a free childhood. I mean, that, that, I mean, they're like, like a lot of teenagers, they're mostly interested in rebelling against the adult authorities around them. And this is the form that adult authority takes in their lives. And who knows? It could totally change if, if our society changes significantly in the future. Um, I don't, I don't think that they have the same concept of childhood that, that you're voicing. I mean, I, but is it that really is that really a received concept or is that just like f- feeling hunger for food or you know lust for sex like just wanting to be imaginatively free as a young person is a totally socially constructed or historically contingent category I find that really dreary. Well I mean it seems like that's kind of that's kind of baked into the idea that you're angry and rebelling right the thing that you're angry and rebelling about is that you were deprived of that primal experience of freedom. Yes, it's definitely it's not about an idea of childhood. It's a desire for freedom, yes, but also it's a desire for an alternate system of meaning rather than 
um, just like, I mean, there's an element of just get off of my back, but there is also an element of, is this really worth obtaining? Is this is this really what life is all about? Those childhood impulses probably exist, that impulse to be free, to be imaginatively free, to uh, to play. But I don't think that it's necessarily given the label childhood as a mm-hmm. as a mm-hmm. as an ideal like you've taken away my childhood right, um, because right. their only experience of childhood is to be managed in this way well and this right. the series actually contains a moment a flashback scene of one of the characters as a child fernando the ca- the character mm-hmm. who's in a wheelchair and who has who has some problem passing the health screening to get into the 3% but he's in the running and there's a flashback to his childhood when as a child already in a wheelchair he's practicing for his future three yeah. percent test so he's drawn a you know kind of a face of a man on the mirror and is pretending that that's the person interrogating him at his test so to the degree we see what the childhoods of these characters were like they were already being tracked and they were already mm-hmm. anxious right. about this entry into the i top mean 3%. their dream of escape to something wonderful like the land of oz is this offshore world and the fact that they can't see it makes it kind of different from the upper middle class or upper class life in in this society which is constantly on display in the form of celebrity culture and just movie and television depictions of the lives of the rich hmm. well i'm curious to wrap the segment i mean laura you you're familiar with this genre do you think this is a standout entry in it and are you going to continue to watch it through to the end i will definitely watch it through to the end because i do like this kind of narrative it's nice that it doesn't feature these sort of manufactured processed starlets and and mm-hmm. and leading boys that are sort of set up to be crushworthy for the teenage girl audience i mean there it feels not so um it feels less like a processed mm-hmm. attempt to critique a processed society. It's true. It's a scruffier exactly. and more diverse group of yeah. kids than you yes. get in the American Hollywood equivalent. Exactly. Yeah, Dana, are you going to watch it through to the end? Oh, yeah, definitely. Especially now that I've discovered the magic key <laughs> to hearing the original language. I'd watch it just to hear the most beautiful language That's in the true. world. It is yeah, really no, I, beautiful. It is. Uh, I'm completely in. Uh, I do think it's not unfamiliar in concept, but uh, in execution, it does seem to be um, clever and original enough. I'm really enjoying it. Um, three thumbs up. Okay, it's called Three Percent. It's streaming on Netflix. Very curious to know what you think about it. So come to Facebook.com/slash/CultureVest and uh, give us a shout. Let us know. All right, moving on. Even gamers who don't resort to physical violence may still be affected by constant immersion in a medium where combat is the only visible approach to resolving any problem. So writes Laura Miller, of course, our uh, uh, co-host for this panel. Laura, um, this is such a great, um, if unlikely, setup to have you play video games and then write about it. I'm curious to find out what you discovered. Uh, the Occasion for the Peace, I should say, is a book b- uh, about the effect of video games uh, on their players, uh, the eternal question of whether they desensitize people to uh, violence and perhaps even inspire them to violence. That really didn't become the focus of your piece precisely. The, there's enough agnosticism on that question, and you didn't set out to resolve it in any way. But I'm curious, what was your experience of video games before you undertook uh, playing them? I do play them on an ongoing basis. It's not um, something that's um, unfamiliar to me. And I also participate in various sort of socializing 
activities that are sort of attached to to playing. Well, the main one that I play is called Don't Starve. What I don't play is is first-person shooters, and I didn't for this piece. Instead, I watched other people play because I'm just never going to be good enough at a, for, at, a, at a shooter to get far enough to see everything that the game has to offer or even to see a significant amount of what the game has to offer. I, I'm also just not really interested in shooters in particular or any kind of game where combat is the main activity. I find it to be boring. So um, so to research this, I just watched people play on Twitch, and um, which is a website where you can do that. And then, of course, I um, read this book, which is a pretty um, insupportable argument that video games are causing children to be violent. There really is no good evidence to that effect. And um, what studies there are. There are tons of studies that suggest that there is some kind of link between increased aggression and playing violent video games um, have been, their methodology has been questioned. And in fact, the biggest statistical invalidation of that argument is the fact that youth violence has plummeted since video games became very, very common. It is true that's, that when youth violence occurs, you, we often learn that the perpetrator has played some kind of video game, sometimes a violent video game, but that's because something like 90% of all young people play them. So they're, they're, it's more of a correlation than a causality relationship. So, so this guy, uh, uh, Dave Grossman, who wrote uh, this book, Assassination Generation, is making an argument that he can't really support. Um, so I spent some of the piece making the argument that his argument has no merit. But then you do wind up with this interesting question of what effect do video games have on people? The gaming community is very defensive about games because they are often the subject of moral panics in the way that uh, violent television or comic books have been in the past. And, and, and these moral panics often lead to sort of censorship campaigns, which in the case of comics was were very devastating. Um, but there's also this countervailing pressure that games should be taken seriously as a form of culture. And so you end up with this weird paradox where if games are treated as insignificant, the uh, late film critic, critic Roger Ebert once wrote a, a column saying video games could never be art and this caused a huge uproar. But then if you if they're subjected to any of the kind of critical scrutiny that an actual form of art is going to be subjected to because that's one of the the fundamental characteristics of art, then the gaming world is furious about that if the games are criticized. So there is kind of this weird way that it's very, very hard to talk about it as a as a form of culture, partly because I, I think that the people who love it, who love gaming, have a particular relationship to it that is even more sort of disproportionately defensive than almost any other form of culture. Um, what is it specifically about video games that, that people's self-image almost gets invested in them? 
Yeah, they def- they can define who you are in a particular way that is distinctive. And part of that is just the sheer amount of time that you put into them, especially if you're at all a serious player or just really serious about a particular game. And also they are immersive in a way that makes them seem more like a lived experience than even necessarily reading a book or or listening to music, which tends to be sort of fused with your, your lived experiences. And I think also, in order to be the sort of person who has enough time um, to put into video games, you're often a young person, a student who doesn't have work or kids. And, um, and so it's a bigger chunk of your life, and you have less to sort of counterbalance it. I mean, one of the things you have to remind yourself when you're fighting with somebody online about a game is that that chances are that person is 14 years old and they don't have a a great sense of proportion about what about the issue at hand or much experience even with disagreeing with someone about culture. So, uh, you know, it's there is the illusion created that that every voice online is coming from basically the same kind of person, which isn't necessarily the case. And it really helps often to just remind yourself that sometimes you're just interacting with with kids. You've trashed this book, Assassination Generation. Mm-hmm. You say that it's really overwhelmingly alarmist and, and poorly sourced and all of that. But you do ask the question yourself, not whether first-person shooter games make people more violent and aggressive and likely to go commit acts of violence in real life, but do they make us more cruel? And I wanted to hear about that distinction and why you think it's interesting well, to Well, there's an interesting question, cruelty. like an, an interesting question having to do with the morality of of behavior that doesn't hurt anybody. Uh, as a general rule, most of us would think, well, if you're not hurting anybody, how can it be wrong? But if you're engaging in a sort of simulated behavior of cruelty, and this is this is this is one of the questions asked by the television series Westworld, like what does it mean to over and over again engage in a sort of a simulated cruelty? Um, does that cause any kind of moral damage to the person who's sort of indulging in it? And in does that change you to enact that over and over again? Because we know that the things that we do over and over again change us. But I think even more than that, and this came up with this particular uh, first-person game, Battlefield, which is about World War One, there is this sort of weird, creeping unreality of it. The more realistic the game appears, the more real it looks and sounds, the more it fosters a sense that it actually is real. And you end up mistaking this, this curated reality for, a, for an actual lived experience. I mean, I'm not thinking, I'm not by any means saying that anyone actually thinks when they play Battlefield they've been in World War One. But because World War One, the most important things that we know about World War One, the sort of takeaway that all of Western civilization has about World War One is that it was pointless, that it was um miserable, and that it was just unbelievably lethal. You know, that tens of thousands of people would die on a single day of battle. And None of that is really that present in Battlefield. I mean, you can feel that the people who produced it made an effort to deal with the truth of the war, and they tried to say, here's this ordinary soldier, and here's his story, and here's this person's story. But World War I was really about sitting in a muddy trench with your feet rotting in your boots 
for days at a time while your best friend died permanently next to you. It it is trying to be true to World War One in in its really sincere way. I mean, I believe that the 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 designers of the game were really trying to do that, but because by necessity as a game, it has to subtract everything that really identifies World War One as World War One. It is so fundamentally false. Mm-hmm. Well, then I'm also thinking as you're describing that, that it, it, it's almost impossible to invent an anti-war video game, right? I mean, what would it mean to make it, it a would game have to that hurt. anti-war? I mean, that that was the thing that I thought would be like the real new frontier of video games, not VR, but video games that actually hurt. Like oh, yeah, when you or, got hit, or, you'd feel it. Well, dread, boredom, the fear of losing your life, the fear of losing everything, the fear of your, if you don't, if you fuck up, your homeland is invaded. You know, I mean, you can't. And um, it just seems to me you're swimming in untruth to play a video game about World War One. It sort of affronts every level of reality um, and replaces it with, um, you know, every manner of... But there, but there invasion. are there are game like experiences that do more justice. It's partly just the particular form of this game, mm. which is mm-hmm. as a shooter, so that as much as the they can build up the sort of tragedy of the war, they're all around it. There are these cutscenes, which are like these video scenes of that that attempt to sort of present the real life drama of the war but then the actual core gameplay is just fun shooting and ducking and 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 showing off your skills and 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 being a marksman so um so you know that's just the nature of that game there are there's a game called Valiant Hearts The Great War which is a more sort of searching and um tragic examination of the experience because it's not fundamentally about shooting at targets. There are also a whole, there are just many other genres of video games that don't involve this particular type of activity, combat, for example. And and then there are also combat games that exist in outrageous fantasy worlds or cartoon worlds or, or whatever that are simply just fun to play but there there are games that are perfectly capable of exploring real experience or or of being artful of being forms of culture it's just that the really biggest most popular games their their point is to be fun and there's just no real way that you can make world war 1 fun i know look i want to say here also um quickly uh, you know when <laughs> I think I've said this on the show before. When I when my wife was pregnant with our first child at the baby shower, a friend of mine, kind of half as a joke, gave me an Xbox and a copy of Max Payne, which was his favorite. It's not a first person shooter; it's a third per- person shooter, I think technically. But anyway, and he, and he said, "Knock yourself out, right?" And I did. I played it. I played it for you know unrelentingly for you know, the the six anxious months running up to becoming a father, and. um I loved it. I had an enormous amount of fun playing it. I don't think it made me 
a, a crueler or less sensitive human being. I don't have a huge uh, uh, chip on my shoulder when it comes to video games. Dana, on the other hand, you won't go near them, I take it. Yeah, I mean, I guess when I hear the, all these descriptions of, you know, the various ways in which killing can be made fun, the whole industry just seems objectionable to me. I mean, flame away, but, you know, it just the, the fact that there's a huge lucrative industry based on simulations of killing from whoever's point of view, just it, it seems sort of staggering to me. And, and that but combined with our gun not... laws makes me very unsurprised that we're the violent place that we are. Well, you sound like the Colonel, guy who wrote Lieutenant the Colonel Dave Grossman right there. Um, they aren't making our society more violent because our society is less violent now. And arguably that could be because a bunch of young men have been taken off the streets by video games because every war correspondent I've ever known has said, we can talk about longstanding ethnic tensions, we can talk about borders, we can talk about this or that, but the main reason you have war in the world is because young men have guns and are outside. And in this case, they're inside with fake guns, and that might be really great for for the safety of all the rest of us. But that is an unfair characterization of the video game industry because not all video games involve simulated killing. And so, you know, you can't tar the whole industry with that. But on the other hand, the sort of base, big, money, popular, million copy selling games tend to have that that as a major element. All right. Well, the um, the piece on Slate is called Do Video Games Make Us More Cruel? It goes by various titles, but um, that's the one popping up in front of me right now. It's by Laura Miller. Um, check it out and let us know what games you play and do you object to our characterization of video games at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right, moving on. All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you have? Uh, this week, I'm going to endorse a political document that's been going around the web. This is perhaps the most apropos week in all of American history to read this document. And so I recommend that everybody read it. It is the 68th Federalist Paper by Alexander Hamilton. It was published in 1788 in the New York Packet. And you can find it all over the place online. We'll put a, we'll put a link to it on our show page. But it's a short little thing. It's These things were published, the Federalist Papers, as newspaper essays at the time. So it's about 1,500 words long. It's signed Publius, which was the pseudonym he liked to use when he published in the paper. And it's essentially about the formation of the Electoral College and the purpose of the Electoral College, which specifically, Hamilton says in, in this Federalist 68, is the following. So this is a quote from a little bit maybe three paragraphs into the essay. Nothing was to be more desired in putting together the Electoral College than that every practicable obstacle should be opposed to cabal, intrigue, and corruption. These most deadly adversaries of Republican government might naturally have been expected to make their approaches from more than one quarter, but chiefly from the desire in foreign powers to gain an improper ascendant in our councils. How could they better gratify this than by raising a creature of their own to the chief magistracy of the Union? But the convention have guarded against all danger of this sort with the most provident and judicious attention. They have not made the appointment of the president to depend on any pre-existing bodies of men who might be tampered with beforehand to prostitute their votes. But they have referred it in the first instance to an immediate act of the people of America to be exerted in the choice of persons for the temporary and sole purpose of making the appointment. In other words, this body was formed among other things, specifically to block the exact thing that's happening now in our government. So if you want to understand why it's significant that there be a bipartisan investigation into the Russian hacks, go back to 1788. You got it right in front of you. Glorious. Um, Laura, what do you have? Well, I guess on the other end of the spectrum, um, as the 
occasional expert to come in and talk about the spooky and the scary, I would like to recommend this sci-fi channel series called Channel Zero. Uh, the particular, it's a like an anthology series, a little bit like American Horror Story. And so the recent, the recently completed series is called Candle Cove. These are uh, kind of eerie, spooky stories based on creepypasta, which is a kind of internet campfire story world of cut and paste um, uh, spooky stories, the most notorious of which, unfortunately, is Slenderman. But um, this particular one is about a child psychologist who goes back to his hometown in the Midwest, where there have been there were a series of unsolved murders in his childhood that he believes are linked to this um, strange children's television show with puppets in it that uh, that only children could ever see that would just kind of come on the TV in odd moments. It's a kind of a haunted television story, and it's beautifully executed. And in particular, I feel that the lead actor is really excellent at playing a character who is someone who you can never entirely decide if he's the hero or the villain. Um, so that's Channel Zero, Candle Cove. I'm going to endorse downtown Troy, New York. <laughs> it's a small um, city uh, sort of directly across from Albany that has an interesting, if somewhat troubled, history in that it was the world's capital of detachable shirt collar manufacturing. And you can imagine where this story ends uh, in obsolescence and finally despair and then adds in the train station for not doing heroin, exhorting you not to do heroin. Um, but Troy is making a bit of a comeback. I mean, it's interesting in that it's a bit—it's something of a university town. Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute is there. And I think another university, Russell Sage, is there and possibly a third. I, I don't have it quite right. But um, a bunch of a, a bunch of people who some of whom maybe have happened upon Troy for other reasons, but in part because I think Hudson, New York is now so expensive um, relative to what it once was. Interesting people are starting really curious, really intriguing businesses in Troy, some of which are tech based um, and, and um, you know, R to RPI, what like, you know, Silicon Valley was in seed form, Silicon Valley once was to Stanford. And that's wonderful. But also this young couple is starting a series of restaurants, one of which is called Pex Arcade, which was recently named one of the hundred most intriguing restaurants in America by Open Table. What's going on there is so lovely and so fresh and so early, right? I mean, this cycle, it, what's happened over the last 40 years is that the Soho cycle of you know, artists and, and, and creative types moving to a neighborhood, inhabiting more or less abandoned real estate for cheap, doing creative work, and then establishing the services that the yuppies then come and scavenge off of, um, and then the real estate prices go through the roof. That cycle is so sped up, sped up now. I, before people people had said Bush, and before they'd even said Wick, uh, hedge funders <laughs> had started, you know, buying lofts in order to feel young there. There's something a little off the map going on there, and it still feels off the map. And as far as I, as I understand it now, having read a little bit about it, the city of Troy really wants this to happen. It's not, it's not you know, some sort of scourge, you know, yuppie scourge that that's being fought against. In fact, it seems as though the political structure of Troy is encouraging what's going on. And it's, it's, I'm just telling you, it's in very tender seedling form right now, which is, I think, when these things are their sweetest. And I 
long for the chance that drive 35 minutes north and have a few hours that I need to kill in Troy. Meet me, meet me, meet me for a beer in Troy. I don't know. Um, go to Troy, New York. Um, talk to me about Troy. Tell me what you know about Troy. I love it. Dana, thank you so much. Thanks, Stephen. Laura, thanks a lot. As always, just an immense pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our intern is Daniel Schrader. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Networks. The Culture Gap Fest, of course, we are proudly part of the Panoply Network. And you can check out an entire roster of like-minded, like-sounding shows at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Laura Miller, Sam Adams, and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll, we'll see you soon. Camelot. Camelot, I know it gives a person pause, but in Camelot.